Okay, so today I'm going to be talking a little bit about what my actual diagnosis looked like. You know, how does how does that actually happen? So I'm going to be pulling back the curtain a little bit and just letting you know how it transpired, what the immediate response was, um, and all of that. So it's kind of a unique story, so I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Mental Health for Holiness podcast, a podcast for women who want to find hope in their mental sufferings and improve their psychological well-being so they can love Jesus more. I'm your host, Talia Cruzi. I'm a wife, a mom, and I've been managing bipolar disorder for over a decade, while also continuing on my own journey towards holiness. And I am so grateful to be able to coach other women to do the same. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. So last week, I shared the first part of my mental health story and what my life was like leading up to a diagnosis with uh, bipolar 2. So I highly recommend that you listen to that first to catch you up. Uh, Let's see, where I left off was I had finished college. I graduated in 2008, and I went back for another year to finish up my prereqs to apply for medical school. I had my degree in exercise physiology, and then I did an internship in cardiac rehab that was awful. (laughs) Oh man, it was, I did it during the summer, the summer after I graduated, and it was, it was a terrible summer. Um, It was around this time that I was advised to share with a good friend of mine that I wasn't really doing very well. Uh, I was doing this internship for cardiac rehab in a hospital basement, which is super depressing in and of itself. Um, So there was that. And that was the environment I was in every day (laughs) during the summer. And I had also just changed living situations as is very normal in your 20s and especially post-college. And so I wasn't as close to my good group of friends uh, just because people were getting married and things like that. So that's how that went. And then just having graduated from college, right, I just I had no idea what to do next. I had never thought about really or dreamt about what life would look like after college. Like my whole childhood, I knew what I was going to do the next year. I was going to go to the next grade in school and then I would graduate high school and then I would go to college and then I would graduate college and then I have I had no idea. Like the vision just kind of went black after that. I mean, I knew I wanted to probably get married and have kids and stuff, I guess, but up to this point I had just been so focused with, you know, what the the question of what are you going to do? Like, what job are you going to have? What are you majoring in? And this just continued to solidify the idea that I was really a human doing. Like, I wasn't a human being. My whole sense of self-worth came from what I did. And so I wanted to go do something big. I, I did not want to be quote-unquote normal. I was... I did not want to go back to my small town and settle down and raise a family and have a normal job. I just did not want to do that. And this internship that I was in was also my first encounter with adults, right? Because at that point, I didn't consider my adult, myself an adult, um, even though I was 21, 22. 
Uh, at least I did not feel like one. Um, but regardless, this was my first encounter with adults who have their adult job and they lived for the weekend. I mean, every week dragged on with this attitude of like, oh, it's Monday, it's hump day, oh, it's finally Friday. And I was just like, please do not tell me that this is what the rest of my life is going to be like. This is exactly why I do not want a passionless job. No way. So um, I thought, well, I don't think you can be passionless and be a doctor. So I decided to go back and finish classes to apply to medical school. Because again, instead of changing the way that I thought, I based it all on circumstances as if I just have to change the job and I have to change my career and I have to live somewhere differently. As if this was going to give me ultimate happiness and meaning and purpose in my life. And in the midst of this, I was having a lot more depressive episodes. Uh, Another reason why I went back to school, I think, is because I didn't know how to not be in school. I loved school. I loved the challenge. I loved learning. It motivated me and kind of distracted me from this depression that I seemed to be in. Um, But regardless, there was still a lot of crying and a lot of feeling just like I was absolutely lost and in the cycle of wanting to, I want to be crazy and I want to act out. And yet all it did was really expend energy and then I'd be really tired and my sleep cycle was all over the place. And again, I was just a mess. And I don't think that I really gave the impression that I was a mess to my friends, my family, but I, I was inside. I, I was such a mess. Uh, so my internship director, who was very good, she was the best part of my whole internship. And I was really able to confide in her that I thought, I might be like clinically depressed. And so, um, because I, I was coming to work for the day, just miserable. Uh, I mean, cause I would get up like 15 minutes before I was supposed to be there because I would lay in bed as long as I could. And then I would kind of just bank on this burst of energy of just like, I just, I just gotta do it. I just gotta go. And I would, I would allow, maybe allow myself to go get a fancy coffee or something that I couldn't afford just to get me out of bed because I just, otherwise I had just, I had no motivation, just zero. Uh, so I would come into work for the day again, just miserable. I probably had a stomach ache from binging the night before, or I probably looked a bit disheveled and non-professional because I just got ready in literally five minutes. And anyway, so my director kind of knew something was up because she's human. And she told me that, um, and I did, right? I told her, I, I think I'm struggling with, with depression. And so she told me that I really needed to confide in a close friend that I was, that I was having this problem and I needed to do it right, right now, like right then. So I needed to call someone and tell them that I thought I was depressed. And I had a close girlfriend that I confided in. She actually worked at the same hospital as a physical therapist. So uh, I was able to call her some, I can't remember. We probably, I probably texted her and said, Hey, can we meet uh, during your morning break or something? And it, it was kind of awkward. I, th- I probably just said, so I, I think I'm really depressed. <laughs> and 
she said something along the lines of like, okay. Uh, and the moment was maybe a little awkward, but it wasn't awkward for our relationship or anything. Um, cause she was a really good friend and I had lived with her for a couple of years and we knew each other very, very well. Uh, but that was the really first time I confided in her and said it out loud to somebody else that I was having these episodes that I, I was really thought I was depressed. So fast forward a few months, uh, fall of 2008, I went back to school to finish, uh, my pre-med classes. And again, I think I had, I think it came to like the point I had skipped a class, like a big class. I mean, I had, I had skipped plenty of classes before, right? Like the ones that aren't challenging at all. And you're like, I have no idea why I'm paying for this. And you don't really care, but the college says you have to take this class. So whatever you're taking the class. And, but this, this was like a big class, right? As in like, you know, if you miss one class, you are going to be so far behind and it's not going to be fun to try to catch up. So I think it was a physics class or something. So I had skipped it. I just did not get out of bed. I, it did not motivate me to get up and out. And I just knew that at that point, you know, something was really wrong. Um, so I called this friend of mine again that I had confided in during the summer. And I said, I, I, I really have to go to the hospital like today. And, and I, I had no idea where to go or, or anything, but I knew she would know where to go. Uh, I knew that she would figure it out if she didn't know. Uh, I just was able to really lean on her and um, I just knew I, I had to do something. So she knew where to take me, I guess. And so we went and they did a little intake on me. Um, you know, asked me questions about my mood, about my symptoms. And I'm pretty sure I was just, I just cried through the whole thing. And the nurse was super empathetic, super nice. And then I found out that they had also interviewed my friend who was in the waiting room. And I think their, I think their goal at that specific time is really just to find out like, does this person need to be admitted or not? Like, how bad is this? And um, I never really had, I wasn't like suicidal or I had never really struggled with, with suicidal thoughts. I wasn't, again, I wasn't harming myself in a direct way that was extremely alarming like that needed immediate attention because I was doing mostly through food and exercise and driving and all that stuff so uh so I wasn't admitted and I didn't think I needed to be but I met with the psychiatrist who was actually also a deacon for the diocese uh and so it was kind of odd um it wasn't bad he was fine but he seemed to be more interested in the fact that I had converted to the Catholic church. And so he was just asking me like a lot about that. And he was like, I mean, yeah, yeah. He, he just didn't really uh, address the problem. So um, he, I mean, he ultimately said, yeah, I mean, you're probably depressed. And so we're going to start, I'll, I'll start you on some Prozac and then we'll see how that goes. Um and he, you could just tell he's used to doing this every day, all day, you know? And for me, it was such a big hurdle because I, I didn't want to take medicine if I didn't need it. And I just thought this put me in a totally different category of people. Uh, right. I thought I was just so weak and so pathetic. And 
at the same time, I thought, well, what I, whatever I'm doing right now isn't working, so something has to change. And so I started taking uh, Prozac, and it was terrible. Uh, if I thought I felt crazy before, I mean, I really felt like a crazy lady. And I remember getting like severe shakes and headaches, and I, I thought, well, this is not helpful. So I think at my follow-up appointment, he changed it to a different SSRI, which is a class of um, antidepressants that uh, Prozac is in. So he changed it, uh, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but it wasn't as bad. It, it, maybe it helped a little bit. But, you know, after that, that was kind of it. That was the real-life version of, quote-unquote, getting help uh, from a professional. And it was a bit it was a bit wanting, to say the least. So now, fast forward to summer of 2009, I served on Totus Tuus, which is um, a traveling team of catechists that go around the diocese and put on camps for um grade school kids and high school kids and it's made up of a group of 14 members there's two men two women and we had a blast I loved it I loved that summer it was a great summer I was with people all the time I was never by myself uh the mission every day was very simple you know just teach these kids about Jesus and just help them love him and so I started thinking that perhaps I had a vocation to religious life and I loved having community. I loved having the accountability, the routine. It, I mean, it was just, it was great. And I was I was a lot more stable that way. So I think for a bit, I, I just thought, well, yeah, I mean, I don't think I can go be married and have a family if, if this is what I'm going to be like. So maybe I'll just go to the convent and like, they can just keep me in line, right? Um, and plus, I really did love Jesus a lot. And so... Um, and then, so fall of 2009, after Totus Tuus, it got really dark again. I mean, it was, it was, things got really bad then because I lived by myself for the first time ever. So that was awful. And thankfully it was short lived. Um, and my sister came to live with me after, in, I think in January, but yeah, it was bad up to that point. Uh, I was working as a youth minister at the time which I also hated and just getting ready. I was t- getting ready to take my MCATs and, but yeah, I hated being a youth minister. And it, that really surprised me because I'd always been a small group leader, always had helped in that arena, but being in charge of that was not a good fit for me. And it was during this time that I got acquainted with a religious order that I was really quite attracted to. Uh, they had a lot of sisters who were also doctors. And so that got my attention and I went out and visited them and felt God was calling me there. And so I wrote my letter asking entry into the community. That's that's typically a pretty normal first step. And I got accepted in December of 2009. And then I went back out to the mother house, which was in Michigan in March of 2010, to do a psychological evaluation, which is pretty standard now for seminaries and religious communities. Um, So it was a two-day ordeal, and I spent a lot of time filling out tests that asked a lot of questions, Uh, questions that were like, what what does that have to do with anything? (laughs) To me, you know, I just remember some of the questions saying, you know, how many times have you flown across the ocean in the past year? And I was like, wow, really? Um, 
how many magazines have you been in? How many covers have you been on? And I mean, now, now I know that there is a, a method to that madness as, as in they're not necessarily looking for the answer to that per se, more so looking at how consistently you're answering these type of questions. And anyway, I also remember drawing a lot of pictures and then also meeting with the psychiatrist who was a sister with this particular community. So that was kind of interesting. Um, Something that stood out to me during this evaluation and the one at the hospital where my friend took me uh, a year and a half before was that one of the first questions they always asked was, you know, describe a typical day for you. And I would never be able to answer it. I had no typical day. Every day was different because it all depended on my mood. And I knew that that wasn't normal. Um, I knew that most people had some type of routine. And like I said, mine was more of a, I guess, of a weekly routine as far as looking for a pattern. But I felt so embarrassed that I could never answer that question. So at the end of this two-day psychological extravaganza, um, I met with my psychi- I met with this particular psychiatrist again, and she very calmly sat down. Uh, I'll never forget it. And she said, "So I think you have bipolar." And she said it very confidently, very you know non-dramatically. And I remember thinking, uh, "Okay, yeah, that makes sense." That there was a part of me that said that, but there was also a part of me that was like, come on, that's like over the top. I, I'm not that bad, you know. Um, I think that was a part of me that was just hoping that I wasn't that bad, though. Um, so it, it was just conflicting, right? It, when you're diagnosed with something, there's that part that is like, oh, finally, we have a name for this. We can We can treat this. But then there's also this part of you that is like, no, <laughs> no, it's not, it's not that. Um, so there's that, just that conflict. And what, but really, you know, I knew it ran in my family. So I, that was the part that kind of made sense for me. But at the same time, I didn't know what it meant for me, like as in for the rest of my life. Cause again, I thought it kind of put me in this other category of like, just, just try to live your life. Good luck. And, um, you're not going to do anything big with your life. Like you're not going to do, you're not going to really make an impact. Um, you're just going to kind of be a burden to everybody for, for forever. Um, and yet the best thing that this psychiatrist also said was, I remember her saying, she goes, you can live a normal life. And she said it very confidently. She goes, you're young. I think I was 24 at the time. And she goes, you are going to have you're going to have to really work on some things in order for that to happen, but you can absolutely live a normal life. Cause I think that was my thing is that I was, I was afraid that I would just be in and out of hospitals and I was just going to be, that just meant like the stability was not going to ever be there. And so the miraculous thing about this was that I was still accepted into this community. And the well, that's a miracle in the sense that there were plenty of other communities, um, some that I had looked into that simply upon the fact that I was on antidepressants alone, that they would not accept me. And there's a reason to that. I mean, they simply, these communities don't always have the resources necessary to take care of that, that person and make sure that they get the help that they need. 
so that's why you have to be in, in really good health in order to, to be accepted into a religious community. But with this community, they had resources. They had built-in resources. They had their own psychiatrists, right? So I was still accepted. But it was determined that instead of entering postulancy, which was the normal course of action for this community, that I would do a year of pre-postulancy in order to focus on this diagnosis, on my mental health, on getting on the right medicine, getting used to a routine that was more compatible with religious life. Um, otherwise it was going to be very difficult for me to go from not being able to tell you what my typical day looked like because I'm all over the place to suddenly living a very structured ordered life where I couldn't just let my moods take me wherever they fancied right they said that's that's going to be too much of a drastic change for you so uh, they suggested you know I go to this year of pre-postulancy and it would allow a bit more flexibility. I'd have more one-on-one time with a formator. And so I kind of describe it like, you know, it's like pre, it was like preschool for religious life. Uh, the kicker was that this year would be taking place at their convent in Germany. So the mother house was in Michigan. And then they had other convents throughout the United States and a few internationally. But uh, that's where I would be spending the year there. Uh, and I wouldn't be coming home. I wouldn't be doing any visits. I would just be there. Uh, first, I would come to the mother house and do a month of therapy with this particular psychiatrist who had also done my evaluation and diagnosis. So my, the plan was to come in August of 2010, and I would go to therapy every day for a month, which is a lot. <laughs> and then in September, I would fly out to Germany and live with the sisters there for a year and continue therapy um, over the phone with my therapist. But then I also had a formator in Germany that kind of took care of the rest of, of the stuff that was not medicine or therapy. And so that's the next part of the story <clears throat> is really what that year looked like, how that really served as such a blessing to me the personal and spiritual formation that took place and honestly just really laid the foundation for the rest of my life. And again, how medicine and therapy were a part of that foundation, but it was really the integration of medicine and therapy along with other parts of my life that really created an environment that allowed for healing to take place. So because before where it was just like, yeah, just throw some medicine at it and, you know, good luck. Like this was just, this was way more than that. And I think that's just a missing piece when we come to dealing with mental health is realizing that it really does affect our whole life. And so we have to take our whole life and, and see how it affects all the mental health and how mental health influences all the other parts, all that. So, I mean, so to this day, there are pillars that uphold that integrated approach to living with this this diagnosis and this disorder. And the best thing and most important thing is that these sisters that I lived with in Germany gave me hope. And they they didn't just tell me to have they didn't just tell me to have hope. And they didn't just say, here's some health self help books and here's a therapist referral and a prescription. And by the way, try and try and try and live your day by this schedule and here's a high five for good luck, right? 
they didn't do that. They actually took me under their wing and said, we're going to show you how to do this. And we're going to love you along the way because you are not going to do this in one day. You're not going to do this in one month. This is going to take a time. So that is where the next part of this story is going to take off. And I hope that this episode has given you some good food for thought and God bless your day. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Mental Health for Holiness. If you did, I would greatly appreciate it if you left a rating and review and shared it with everyone or anyone who popped into your mind while you were listening. I truly believe that this conversation on mental health is really so necessary to our culture at large. And so I would be so grateful if you could help be a part of spreading the message. I also want to encourage your participation in the conversation. I would appreciate any feedback or if you have your own mental health story that you would like to share and how it has affected your own journey towards holiness, feel free to reach out. You can contact me at mentalhealthforholiness.com backslash contact. And know that I am praying for 